how you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. Find us and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Today, we're going truly intellectual here at the Plastic Podcasts. We've had many a literary doctor taking part, but this is the first time we've had a PhD student in human geography. Neve Lear is a third-year PhD student at Newcastle University and is currently looking at the curious phenomenon of passport paddies. It also turns out that she and I share a curious familial bond. But the first thing I want to know is, what the heck is human geography? I like to think of geography as the subject that uses all the other subjects to try and describe the world. Um, and human geography is concerned with more human than physical geography, so population, migration, um, development. And there's so many, anything that you can kind of argue is to do with space. And like there's some wonderful, wonderful PhDs in our department, um, ranging from like uh, green activism to toilets and toilet usage. Um, so yeah, it's a very broad subject, a very broad subject. That's why I like it. It kind of gives you a lot of freedom. And how did you get into studying human geography? I loved geography at school. Geography was my favourite subject and I kept going with it when I was trying to decide what I wanted to study at university. Um, for my undergraduate, geography was kind of the, the obvious choice. So I ended up studying geography at Newcastle. I've, I've stayed at Newcastle the whole way through and then I've ended up doing a master's and a PhD and we're, we're still here. Well, back in the, back in the days when, uh, when, when, I was, um, uh, when I was at school and we were still using Slate, um, geography was a fairly dry, a dry subject to be taught. I mean, so go, what was it that fascinated you about it? I, I mean, I was good at it, which I think always helps, especially when you're like 13, 14 years old, like something that you find easy helps. But as I got older and into it a bit more, I, I just, it was the breadth and the fact that I felt like you were so free to study or look at pretty much anything. With us, it was just colouring in maps, you see, and that loses its, <laughs> loses its sheen very, well, very quickly. I do really love, like, coloured-in things. I'm huge on my highlighter collections, and I feel like that is fostered within geography quite nicely. I can have, like, an insane collection of pens, and that there's less judgement than there would be if I was doing maths. So you decided to look at the human geography, particularly where the diaspora was concerned? I did, yeah. Um, that's a funny story, actually. I, it was my second year of university, and I picked Newcastle specifically because I could do physical geography and human geography on the one course. And a lot of places it's separate. So you either do human or physical. Um, and I was determined I wanted to do both. And in my second year, I had picked some physical geography modules. And there was one particular one that required me to go on a field trip and be in um, like waders in a river on my birthday. And I decided that wasn't for me, so switched. And the only um, module I could switch to was um, social geographies. And I like stroll into this lecture theatre um, the day I switched, not really knowing where it was or what I was doing. And there was a lecture being given by um, a teaching fellow at the university um, called Michael Richardson. And he was talking about like um, how we're disabled by environments and things like that. And then at the end, he spoke about his PhD research, um, which was on Irish masculinities in Tyneside. And I was like, oh, you can, you can study Irishness. No, 
Um, and then I went to go and talk to him about it. And then I did my undergraduate dissertation on it and he supervised it and fast forward, what, five years and he's my supervisor for my PhD. It's all his fault. Why did it surprise you that Irishness could be studied? I guess it just never really occurred to me that there was a body of work looking at that. Like, as I said, like now I'm, I, I'm, I'm always floored and excited by the breadth of research that's being done um, in geography, sociology and, and politics more, more broadly. Um, but like, especially back then, it had never occurred to me that like people were looking at things like the Irish diaspora and I'm like, I was just fascinated that 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 was a thing and I think it, it's as a member of that community it's always been something that's really interested me and there's been so many questions that I have about why things are the way they are or why my lived reality is different from someone else who's got a similar heritage to me and I wanted to know why and it sort of it gave me the space to figure it out um, so in many ways it's a completely self-indulgent project um, but you know that's okay. <laughs> you say that, but you did a ten-minute presentation um, that um, this the, the way the reason I, I first became aware of you and your work was that there was a ten-minute presentation that was forwarded to me by one of our guests, John O'Donoghue, and that seemed to yeah. have created something of a stir in your circles. Yeah, there's been a few people who've reached out to me for it, um, which has been really it's been amazing. Like I'm I'm very lucky. Uh, it was part of the British Association of Irish Studies uh, conference. We were meant to do it in person. And obviously, because of the pandemic, it became an online event. And I, I put this conference paper up and so many people were interested and wanted to talk about it um, or just reached out to me to, to tell me their stories so generously. And, and it's been great. And it was just this little, little presentation about passport paddies and hierarchies of Irishness. <laughs> well, we'll come on to such heady stuff later. But this all started, as I understand, from... Um... And watching the rugby. Yes, the rugby. Always the rugby. Um, so my mother um, is a Irish immigrant, County Mayo, uh, a, a Devani like yourself. And um, I was born in Bedfordshire, uh, which is and like in quite a rural part of Bedfordshire, tiny little village, don't have a shop. And uh, the rugby was a big part of, of our lives. My parents and my family more generally really into sport and any excuse to have sport on, have some friends around and have some food and some beers. And we, the Six Nations were like the highlight of the year. And we would have all of our friends, my parents' friends and like my mum's best friend is my best friend's mum. So like they'd all come around and, and we'd watch the rugby. And my, especially on the Ireland-England games, particularly on the Ireland England games, it was my mum in a room full of English people. And obviously she's there in her Irish jersey and everyone else is in their English jerseys. Um, and she's the only one cheering for Ireland. And so I cheered for Ireland with her. Like this is from the age of four, five, six, like very young, always cheered for Ireland. And um, my mum has a tricolour flag. Uh, there's, there's no St George's flag and loud in the house. <laughs> she did let us have England football jerseys for the World Cups, but she was drawing a line at a flag. And I would, especially like if Ireland had won, um, I'd run up and down the road with the flag tied to my back. Um, and if Ireland had been England, I would hang it out the front of the house or our neighbour was Welsh. 
and when Ireland beat Wales I'd go and like knock on his door wearing my flag and it made me feel very I was very like outwardly patriotic for Ireland and I think in in like solidarity with my mum <laughs> Um, whereas my brother would support Wales because it was in between the two. Right, you are. That's um, it's interesting though, isn't it? Ireland had um made itself known internationally as far as um sport was concerned, particularly with um with with the uh, with the Italian ninety World Cup. And an awful lot of an awful lot of my interviewees are sort of cited that as a, something of a turning point in the way that the that the Irish diaspora tended to present themselves in this country. I think there has been. I think the whole of the nineties were very transformative. Um, 1994 was the year that uh, Ireland qualified for the World Cup and England didn't and I was six months old at the time and there's a picture of me in a high chair gripping two little island flags with an island hat and an island t-shirt on because my mum really really took all the liberty she could there she was absolutely thrilled um, that England hadn't qualified um, but you know I think the 90s more broadly um, obviously you have had arguably a, a de-escalation in tensions um, between the two nations in terms of the, the Northern Irish conflict um, and the eventual signing of the Good Friday Agreement. And so the the sort of negative relationships of the 1980s um, were still there, like don't get me wrong, like those tensions are still present, but they were definitely less comparatively. And you had, as you say, Italian 1904, in 1990, you had the 1994 World Cup, you had Jack Charlton, you had the, the beginning of Boyzone and Westlife um, and Bewitched and these big Irish bands who were kind of selling a different form of Irishness. So suddenly, speaking about Ireland in this country, it, it was being, I, I mean, in my thesis, I argue that it, it was depoliticized through the 1990s and the 2010s. And just like the the first half of the 21st century really just been depoliticized by this sort of like pop culture movement, sports um, from Ireland. And that sort of helped de-escalate the tensions and change the way that we perceive Irishness in England. Um, I was speaking to my mum the other day and she was saying um, she emigrated in 1985 and she walked out of work at one point. Um, and left and said she wasn't coming back and it, because she was getting so much like I mean it's difficult calling it racism because of all the, the rightly so like the, the the negative sort of connotations and but she was getting so much bigotry towards her for being Irish uh, that she she walked out of work um, and for me that seems like such a foreign, foreign concept, like, because I'm in this generation where suddenly it's like a trendy thing to have an Irish granny. Um, and that was so close to like my lifetime. Um, Why would you shy away from calling it racism? Do you think? I, I wouldn't necessarily shy away from it. I think there are really unhelpful parallels, particularly in the last six months that have been drawn between, um, Irish migration and the Irish cause um, and rightly, like the the bigotry that has been shown towards Irish people and um, this the slave movement, uh, the slave trade, and things like that. And I, I don't believe that those are helpful or in any way comparable. Um, I do think there is anti-Irish racism. I think particularly in the 1980s um, and probably before that, but I don't necessarily think within our our current context racism. I don't know that it, I don't, it's really difficult because I'm like, is it racism? Is it different? Is it a different form of bigotry? 
I, I don't know what it is exactly, but I don't like, I think probably anti-Irish racism is potentially a better way to describe it, but I, I don't like, I wouldn't want to be drawing parallels between that situation and um, the racism that is, is seen towards um, the AME communities in this country, particularly contemporarily. You're listening to the Plastic Podcast's Tales of the Irish Diaspora, We All Come From Somewhere Else. Neve Lear is something of a first for the Plastic Podcasts, being the only one of my interviewees thus far to be part of that legendary group, the Millennials. I wanted to know a bit more about growing up plastic in the 90s. I was a very pale, red-headed child who had a name that... Um, especially when we had supply teachers, they'd go be doing, going down the register and they'd stop at my name because they couldn't pronounce it. And I think in a lot of ways, like I, I displayed my Irishness as like a, a counter towards that. Like it's like, why is your name spelled funny? Oh well, I'm Irish. Um, and I was always very proud of it. And I think my mum raised us to be very outwardly Irish. And I, I do looking back on it, I think in some ways that's a from speaking to other people who I've researched, um, I think it's a very similar experience. A lot of people, their parents really pushed Irishness. Um, and in some ways, I think that was their defence against the fact that they left, um, was really like channeling home the Irishness in their children. So going to that, because it's, 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 quite, it's quite interesting because um, you represent a, 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 new, a different generation to the ones that we, that we normally interview. Yes. Here. And, it's, 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 and, and likewise, the same is true of your mother um, coming across in the 1980s rather than, say, in the 1950s and 1960s. Yes. And the, what, what, what was it that brought her across? Um, she first came across like the early 1980s in the mm-hmm. summers to work, um, as did all of her siblings. Um, uh, and like her brothers were working uh, usually in sort of construction jobs and she was working as a receptionist I think um, in a swimming pool which my dad was running um, and that was how she met my dad and so she was coming over in the summers to work and then eventually she came over for a weekend or for a visit or something and then never went back and just stayed sort of by accident. So it was partly economics and partly because she met my dad. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, I think that just that in the 1980s, that the economic situation in Ireland wasn't great. So I think she probably would have ended up emigrating anyway. It just would have happened at the same time. Would she have emigrated to London? Like who knows, but out of her, She's one of five and all but one of them left. And I think that's mm-hmm. quite a, a common tale, um, particularly for the West of Ireland and particularly at that sort of, that sort of time. And uh, so what does she do now? Now she is a kept woman at the moment. Uh, she uh, works in a bank. Uh, she worked for RBS for most of my life. And then as I got older, um my Irish grandmother came to live with us and my mum cared for her while she was sick and then my brother was sick for a bit so my mum cared for her and she's been she's been caring for people for the last decade really um my dad's mum and my dad's dad uh and now she's just having a bit of time to herself hopefully enjoying it you know she's getting on a bit (laughs) 
You um you say you were uh, born and raised in Bedfordshire. I think it's yes. uh, towards Milton Keynes area, isn't it? Yeah, sort of between Bedford and Milton Keynes, Master Mortain. Uh, and, and and what was the family home like? Was it was it uh, was like uh, loud and boisterous? Was it quiet and calm? What was it like? Oh no, it was very. My parents worked really long hours and they worked really hard, but it was always. There was always people around. It, there was always family visiting. There was always food going. Do you know, there were. It was busy, and there was music, and there was fun. Like it, it was a really fun household. Um, there was always some level of sport on, or we were going somewhere to do something, or visiting someone, or someone was coming to see us. Like it was, it was very busy. Sports a big thing with your family. Yes, huge, huge. I don't think there's a sporting competition that doesn't grace the TV screens in the Lear household. Um, my dad's really into sport. My brother's really into sport. My mum's really into sport. Um, so, yeah, football, rugby, tennis, snooker. I remember being forced to watch it. My Irish grandma loved snooker, loved it. And we used to sit and watch snooker game after snooker game after snooker game. Um, and then there was cards. We played a lot of cards. When I, I mean, we still play a lot of cards comparatively to a lot of other families. But as I've grown up and I've gone to other places and been into other people's households, just something like, oh, wait, you, you don't play cards? Whereas like it's seen as a cardinal sin to shuffle in a particular way in my house. Like my, my granny would like, she would lose her shit. You couldn't, you couldn't be shuffling with the deck facing outward. And every single time I force my boyfriend to play cards, I'm like, you can't shuffle like that because he would, that was never, a th- do you know what I mean? Like it was such a big thing in our household and it just, it just hasn't been for a lot of other people. I don't think. Um, and with, with the aunts and uncles who came across, um, is it much the same with them? My mum's twin brother is in London um, and their house is always absolutely just busy. People doing stuff. My uncle's so loud um he's deaf in one ear and um he's just very shouty and wonderful uh and my aunt is in america she's got a very she's got three kids very busy i think they're all i think it's just i don't know whether that's the family or what it is but it's always sort of go 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 like there's always food offered do you know what i mean like you could drop by with two minutes notice and there'd be there'd be food waiting for if you needed it and just a lovely, welcoming, like kind and giving sort of family um, space that I was brought up in. And I think as you get older, I mean, I say that I'm not that old, but you, you appreciate that more because you learn that not everyone has that same setup or that same situation. And, and it is really a wonderful thing. Like my aunt, God bless her. Um, for my degree, we were doing a field trip to New, to New York and I texted her being like, hey, Kiss, can me and some of my friends come and stay? <laughs> so I bought four girls and just dumped ourselves on her for Easter one year. Um, and she's n- not a bother, you know? She, like, they're just wonderful, wonderful people. And so that actually brings us very, very neatly onto um, your academic career, I suppose, which is... Um, uh, were you always a were, were you a studious child at school? Oh God, no! I was a very lazy student. Um, at, like at school, I I I did my work in lessons, 
no bother absolutely fine but I was I found school it sounds really stuck up I don't mean like that but I found the academic system in like in in like secondary school like relatively easy like I understood it I knew how to do it I knew how to pass an exam I kind of had the knack to it and I, I I've worked in education for a bit and it is a knack like you can be very very intelligent but if you don't know how to pass the exam you're not going to pass the exam and so I was just very lazy because I knew I could do it and I was I worked hard I don't mean like I didn't work hard but I I, I think what really got me when I got to university was that suddenly I did have to work um whereas I, did, I hadn't had to before um so I would it, I mean even once I'd finished my undergraduate degree, I would never have ever have imagined I'd be doing a PhD. What do you, what, what, what do you, what do your folks think about, um, about, uh, about the potential of Dr. Neve Lear? I think they're just astounded. Um, my, I'm very lucky. Uh, both my grandmothers live with me. Um, my dad's mum for pretty much all of my life and my grandmother for five or six years of my life. And my nan was so proud. God bless her soul. Um, she had a little um, photo frame that was up in her living room that had uh, my undergraduate graduation picture, my master's graduation picture. And then in the middle, there was a picture of my dad when he graduated from his uh, a, a course that he did at some point. And she's like, that's in there as a placeholder until you've got your doctorate. <laughs> God rest her soul. Um, and I think my, like my parents, neither of my parents, uh, well, my mum dropped out of university to move to England and marry my dad. Um, so neither of my parents have a, have a degree, um, at, well, a university degree, like they didn't go to university and go and get their degree and do what I've done. And I think they're just amazed. They're very supportive. I remember when I was looking to go to university and, and, um, it wasn't the sort of thing that was questioned by my school. Like it was like a, you're a high achieving student. Obviously you're going to go to university. And I remember going to my parents and talking about it. And my dad was like, yeah, go to university, but don't go unless you know what you want to do. Mm. And like, that was a, no one had ever said that to me before because it was just sort of like our education system is very geared towards just going to university. And I, and I don't think it's the right thing for a lot of people. And I think it's really detrimental to a lot of people to be pushed into it or not be given the opportunity to think about it. And my parents were very big on me thinking about it. And I really, really appreciate that. And I think I was very lucky to have that. And um, as much as I have no idea how I ended up doing a PhD, <laughs> um, at least it was um, going into my undergraduate at least it was very thought through um but no i think they're, they're very proud of me oh, of course. shocked shocked of course. mostly <laughs> well good lord i mean I, I i feel proud myself because let's face it I'm, I'm i'm possibly a member of the family by extension well yeah you're 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 you must be a cousin or something when we do the, uh, the, I don't know if you've seen the, the, uh, the, the website that we have, but we've got, um, uh, we, we, we do the, 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 Irish, the Irish crest or shield or whatever, however they, uh, they like to sell um, placemats and tablecloths and, 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 uh, and, uh, and, <laughs> and, 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 and coasters nowadays. And that sort and of so stuff. Forth. 
Um, so I may well have have the because I'm I'm not sure that there's one for Leah. I don't um, think there will be. No. So would you mind if we did the Devani one? No, go for it. Do the Devani one. But it's a really weird one because it's it's, it's kind of the red hand of Ulster. Yeah, we're kicked out by the Brits. <laughs> uh, I'm funded by the ASRC, and my conference last year was in Belfast, mm-hmm. and so I went to Belfast for the first time in my life, and I was like. All those, and I, so I was in Palestine in June and had been and I'd seen the walls and like, um, it was an incredible trip. Like you, you must go, um, but did that. And then I was in Belfast like three months later and I was like, oh my God, there's, there's walls up, like still up here. The same as I've seen in, in Palestine. Do you know what I mean? Like walls dividing communities. And I was just like absolutely shocked and astounded that as someone who has lived in this country my whole life, I had never been made aware or I'd never realised. I Like I knew that there was stuff going on, but I just, I didn't realise that there were still walls. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it was like the, the troubles were sort of a thing that sort of happened maybe, but it, it's it's ongoing and it's, it's painful and it, the scars are still there like physically across the landscape and and it is shameful and it is frustrating when people don't recognize it or talk about it and I think the, uh, the amount of people in my life who voted for Brexit and who lived through the troubles and who when I said to them after the Brexit vote being like well what about Northern Ireland and what about the situation like is can you not see how this is going to complicate the situation in northern ireland and they're like i never even thought of that and i was like war was happening in our country like whatever your your feelings on on northern ireland are like it it was happening in somewhere that is ruled by the british government like in in the country that, that you live in that was going on and you just forgot about it and it didn't occur to you like it it's so so it's shocking and it really speaks to the ignorance um within i don't want to say the british public like it is within the british public but the ignorance is facilitated by the fact that we we seem to want to just erase anything that might look negatively on on britain from our education system and from our history history syllabus and just the fact that people can forget do you know what i mean like it's uh it's just shocking we'll be back with neve lear in a moment but now it's time to raise yet another member of the diaspora up onto the plastic pedestal this week it's jess moriarty on edna o'brien so when I was very young, so, and I'm kind of thinking, when would it have been? Because I, I can remember reading them and none of my friends were reading these books. Um, and I did find them quite shocking when I read them as well. So I'm, I'm try- I reckon I might have been about 12 when or 13 when my nan gave me these books to read. Um, and it just being completely new to me, like new stories. Like these weren't stories that were kind of Enid Blyton um, stories. These were kind of three-dimensional people who I could believe in and who I was kind of um, 
fascinated with and who weren't one dimensional or one thing they weren't good and they weren't bad they were they were kind of a whole um, mix of things and 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 at 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 products of their experiences and their mental health and everything too um so uh so yeah so I just thought what a writer what insight what a way to portray the human condition and and somebody obviously really interested in um uh, a kind of human condition as well so 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 I would say Edna O'Brien was kind of one of the first writers um writing in a kind of really three-dimensional vivid evocative way that that and connected me to my nan as well Jess Moriarty there and if you want to hear more of our interview with Jess why not go to www.plasticpodcasts.com or indeed seek us out on Spotify iTunes or Amazon now back to Neve Lear and right now I want to know what she means by passport paddies. My research is focused on the second generation Irish in Britain, uh, specifically in in London, um, and how they're experiencing uh, and negotiating their Irish identity in uh, Brexit Britain. And so I think like most people will have heard of the increase in passport applications, um, particularly from second and third generation Irish people, uh, after the Brexit vote, because obviously an Irish passport, you retain your EU citizenship. And I'm looking not just at people who have applied for passports, but looking at like an area of an area of the diaspora, um, millennials, so people born sort of mid eighties uh, up until 1990, ooh, 97, I think it is. I can't, should know that off the top of my head, but I don't. Um, but the millennial sort of generation, so people who were born um, sort of not born after the Troubles, but kind of came of age after the Good Friday Agreement was signed and um, and how they're, how they're either identifying more with their Irish identity. Some of them have always had Irish passports. Some have had them since Brexit. Some haven't applied yet some wouldn't consider applying and and just looking at the different ways that their that their identity and the way they're choosing to express it has or hasn't been changed by um the vote to leave the european union <laughs> so so you, you you've raised the term um passport paddy yes i mean i wouldn't like to say that i came up with it i i, I haven't seen other people using it before i used it but that's not to say it's mine um it the, the way I dis, I'm describing the people who've accessed their Irish citizenship for their passport um, as a result of the, the Brexit uh, referendum. Um, and it's just a sort of play on the, the plastic paddy, which uh, I got for most of my life and I still get. Um, and so I think when you, look at, when, I'm, when you look at the sort of people I'm speaking to, there are some people who've always had their Irish passports and for a lot of them, they're, they're quite concerned about people who are accessing their passports now um, in the sense that they feel they've had their authenticity and their, the authenticity of their Irish identity questioned and challenged their whole life, um, which I mean, I relate to like it, it's you, you're always trying to defend it and they've there's been quite a backlash again against the increase in applications in the last sort of four or five years in Ireland. Like people aren't happy about it and people do feel like there's a lot of people who 
are just jumping on the bandwagons, so so to speak, just to get their citizenship. And it's particularly complicated by the um, the national the the citizenship laws in, in Ireland and the fact that people who are born in that country are not necessarily entitled to citizenship. And rightly so, like that is seen as unfair that people then who've never even stepped step foot in Ireland uh, are accessing their, their citizenship. And this sort of backlash, you see then people who have been called plastics or or, or have had that authenticity questioned in that way their, their whole lives, they're now turning around and trying to separate themselves from people who are just trying to get a passport um, I'm saying that with like air quotes around it. I, that's that's not my personal perspective of it, but um, a lot of people do think of it like that, and they're they're creating the, these new boundaries between them as people who've accessed their Irish citizenship because they are Irish and because they feel Irish, and and like whether or not there's European um, benefits applied to it, and then this new wave of of what I've called passport paddies. Has something similar happened with other diasporas from other uh, European countries? There has been uh, applications, Italian, I think. The the thing is, the Irish, the the citizenship uh, laws with Ireland is in two thousand four. The, the referendum, uh, I think it was two thousand four, kind of pushed it towards really valuing dissent. Um, so that you can access it when you've not been born in the country, which is and it isn't the same rules for all all the other European nations. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure Italy has similar similar guidelines, uh, but it, it's been huge huge with with Ireland particularly, and I think part of that does does come from the situation in Northern Ireland and the fact that everyone in Northern Ireland is entitled to a, an Irish passport, um, but there has been a huge increase. And I think also just the, the prevalence of people with an Irish grandparent. So many people in, in Britain have one Irish grandparent uh, and that's what you need to, to be eligible um, as a result of the 2004 referendum. Um, so although it is happening, it's not happening to quite the same scale. Right. I just wondered if it was a specifically Irish problem or if it, there was a comparable uh, situation going on in Europe. But also, I wonder, um, is it the fact that Britain is involved in this equation here? I think that in terms of the the like negativity towards it. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think that definitely plays a part. Um, inevitably, there are tensions between Ireland and, and Britain. And as someone who, who would identify as both English and Irish, but as an Irish citizen, I... I see it every day and it's played out every day. Like they're, they're like low level bubbling tensions a lot of the time, but there's always comments and there's always that sort of, um, yeah, like that just sort of discourse around it. And I, I don't think it's helpful. This, this idea of a British person with an Irish grandparent who's never been to Ireland, who's part of this, this league of British exceptionalism that's voted for Brexit now wanting to access the Irish citizenship. I think there's a really sort of negative, um, rightly so. I think like that sort of imagery like that, that's not great. And I think Irish people rightly are defensive of, of their Irishness and their citizenship and, and don't necessarily want particularly the British um, taking some sort of ownership of that. 
That's a very, very specific. That's I mean, that's a, that's a huge number of qualifications to place on a person, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know that they're that they're British, that they never set foot in Ireland, that they voted Brexit, and all this sort of thing. And it's it it it, it, it seems to me that where the 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 notion that you know that Ireland's biggest export is its people that this is this isn't a, just a one-way street here that uh, the Ireland and Irishness has been sold across the world and to the benefit of, if as much as to the chagrin of the Irish well yeah exactly I think um I think this this idea that it's like Brexit voting people who've never been to Ireland who are trying to get Irish passports now like I, in my experience of people I've spoken to and the people that I've interviewed as part of my research none of them that's their experience a lot of them they've got an Irish parent they, they spent all their summers at home and like, in Ireland um and they they felt Irish they just always had a British passport because it didn't matter like there, there wasn't huge huge issues either way whatever you had like as I said like in the 1990s and, and the early noughties like the sort of political aspect of Irishness was taken away. So I, I've been speaking to people who were um, like born in the 1960s in Britain as second generation Irish, and they have a very different experience of it. Like choosing to be Irish came with a, a huge, huge burden. Um, as, as you're aware, like being Irish in the 1980s, like it wasn't easy and identifying as Irish as a second generation person in the 1980s it, it it was it was taken aside it was taking a political stance whereas in 2000 and 2001 it wasn't quite the same thing it was it was a lot easier we were you would just just needed a passport you know and it, it didn't matter both of them had the same entitlements and you lived in britain so a lot of people had a british passport and it, and it was easy enough for them and it's it's now that there are differences in what you're entitled to and now that things aren't necessarily the same and, and crucially i think now that britishness is re representing something that a lot of people don't identify with people are now looking to to their irish passport it's not just a jump to a nationality i think we have to always bear in mind that holding a passport of any description is a huge privilege it's not just something you just go and get um, there's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of finding documentation involved. Like it, it, it's huge work, and I think I think it's really reductive of it to just say they they just want a passport. You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts Tales of the Irish Diaspora. In the last part of this interview with Neve Lear, we talk about the impact of recent events on that depoliticisation of Ireland that her generation have enjoyed. Inevitably, it's like the, the, the B word hovers over us. It's like yes. It's a great big shadow. And, and, and clearly this week in particular, and you talked about earlier the idea that um, for your generation, the notions of Ireland and Irishness had become depoliticised. Do you think that's true now? Well, here you go. Here's a little exclusive into my, my, my conclusions to my PhD. Um, I think I think it's changed. I think Irish identity is politicised once again, and I think it's becoming politicised because of Brexit. Um, like the amount of when I when I set out to do my research, I was like, oh, I wonder if people will feel more Irish because they've got an Irish passport. And for some people, I think I think they felt more Irish. But the, the bigger thing was that 
they wanted an Irish passport not to feel more Irish, like not necessarily like that. Like the the primary motivation wasn't necessarily that they were going to get EU rights and they could have freedom of movement. Like that was all like nice additional extras. Mostly, it was about rejecting the British exceptionalism that Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson have come to to represent, and that Brexit has represented globally in in the last five four five years um like my people just saying that they they didn't want to hold a british passport and get off a, a plane going into a european country like they didn't want to have to hand that over because they they didn't recognize or identify with or agree with the the sort of rhetoric that the leave campaign were peddling and the the anti-migration sort of vibe that that was underlying a lot of that discourse and that they really don't identify with it. And in that sense, they're in this in a similar way that in the 1980s you you picked what side you were on in the troubles. They're they're picking a side now. They're they're rejecting um that 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 viewpoint um that a lot of young people d- disagree with. I don't want to say all of them obviously but it, it's yeah so I, I think it is brexit is is repoliticizing the irish the second generation irish <laughs> and, and and so the cycle goes round again because as we were discussing in our preamble to this interview you you were talking about how the republic of ireland exists as a, as an opposition to britain yeah so i mean so irishness as we know it today the it, it it's an irishness developed of a nationalist movement um if you look back into the history of irish dancing or the history of of the the ga or things like that a lot of it came from the diaspora so people who there's a point in ireland where like you 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 would struggle to play the gaelic games and things like that like it, it wasn't wasn't allowed and oh it was i'm pretty sure it wasn't allowed um it was definitely frowned upon and so those sorts of elements of irish culture were sustained in the diaspora people went abroad people went to america and they they could they could play them or they could they could do irish dancing and they could sustain that that irishness which is a resistance to to britishness and to specifically englishness um the the usage of like Britain, United Kingdom, England is is very specific um, because Englishness quite often gets subbed in for Britishness and Britishness is not the same as Englishness um, but Englishness as a thing sort of overtakes Britishness Um, so I do mean Englishness in that that sense Um, and so, so the Irishness that we know, like the 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 country in itself, exists as a reaction to Britain, and I don't mean that that like Ireland didn't exist for Britain. Of course, it did. But the Republic of Ireland, as a nation state, exists as a rejection of Britishness and the British Empire, and therefore, you're sort of that's that's why I think. You have American Irish 
you don't have British Irish because the two terms just don't go together. You have the Birmingham Irish or the London Irish or the Tyneside Irish. You don't really have British Irish, even though there's so many British and Irish people. And that, that's, it was, it wasn't until 2011, I don't think that Irishness was even an option on the, the census um, for your ethnicity, I think it was. Um, so like, the, the part, like there's so many Irish migrants in this country, there's no official statistics on it because it's not really measured very easily. They, they don't really know exactly how many Irish people are here. Um, and I know, um, I'm pretty sure it was 2011 census, they introduced Irish in the ethnicity column and they thought more people would, would select that and that would give them a better idea of pe people who were English or British or, or Welsh or Scottish, but who had Irish ancestry. But very few people actually selected the Irish for the ethnicity. Um, because it's very hard, I think, also because a lot of people commute in some senses between the two countries. Um, they don't necessarily live full time in either place. And so the, the, the numbers are very wavy, like no one, there's no definitive number. Um, there's so many people who have mixed Irish, British ancestry, but you, you can't be... British and Irish at the same time. No, I think it's and and also it's like it also becomes that thing where you identify as white other. I think um, yeah. it, was, it was it was the phrase that was it was used, and there you you put to one side a uh, a population that includes the mixed race Irish diaspora. Um, yes. and, and 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 so forth. But what I wanted to talk about was just how the how the how the how the history of this goes in in the kind of cycle that. Um, that the adopting of a, of a of an Irish passport is a rejection of Britishness in much the same way as the founding of the Irish state, of the of the Republic of Ireland, is a rejection of Britishness. Yeah, I think there's there's definite parallels to be drawn there. Like it's it is interesting. Um, as I said, like it, it's once again looking at the the second generation of the 1980s and how they they made a political statement with their Irishness. And that is what we're seeing currently in the millennial second generation who are making a political statement with their Irishness. But then we also have it, and, 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 and dare I say, that across the water, there is another, another cycle going on there, which is this, this, uh, this notion of Ireland for the Irish. Which is that that the that the um, the reaction against the people that we describe as passport paddies here uh, means that there's a much more a, a, a sense of uh, some people wanting to shore up that notion of Ireland being as uh, Ireland being as, as as the home of the Irish and and to almost reject the notion of the diaspora. I think that that that's a really that's not really a new thing. The the um... In the light of Brexit, though, it might be a dangerous thing. Yes, in light of Brexit, it might be a dangerous thing. But I think, I don't know, I feel like there, there's always been hostility between those who remained and those who left. And What do you put that down to? I don't, I think it's really tricky. I think there is a sense, because traditionally, I don't want to say traditionally is not the right word, um, historically, people have emigrated from Ireland because they've had to 
um, whether it's been famine or if it's economic downturns, recession, um, it's been a necessity for them to leave. And I think there has been a sort of discourse of them like jumping ship and going off for this easier life somewhere else, whereas someone stayed back and have have struggled through those difficult times and so I think there is a sense of like well in my hierarchies of Irishness um I call them like the proper paddies like we never jump ship we've always been here and we'll always be here and they're sort of at the top of the pyramid Mm -hmm. and then you have those who've left who are a little bit less Irish because of it you do have the the converse um I was reading something I can't think for the life of me who it's by which is terrible um the other day about um how people who have left and have returned the uh the elastic Irish the elastic paddies yes the elastic paddies the ones who've gone back the boomerangs um how there's a, a different sort of hierarchy in Ireland of them being like well you've never left you don't know what else is out there um but for 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 the purposes of these conversations, I think it, it's very much like the those who stayed feel like they struggled, and that those who left sort of gave up and had an easier an easier time of it. Um, that's not to say everyone did or everyone does, but I think there is that sort of feeling somewhere under the surface. I'm like, fair enough. It was it was tough in Ireland. Um, and, and has been, and I'm sure it will be again. Um, and it, it goes in cycles, doesn't it? What's been the response um, when you got across to Ireland in order to do your research to, to, to the paper that you're, you're, you're preparing? This one, I haven't actually taken this, this one um, to Ireland, but generally people are quite interested in it. Um, I haven't had... I mean, you get the odd the odd comment um uh generally something along the lines of all oh, plastics um but i think generally people are, are quite open to understanding and wanting to know a little bit more because i do think it is whether or not you you like the fact that there are people applying for more passports or whether or not you like it i think um i was <laughs> speaking to someone the other day about it and i think they were just excited about the fact that it was something addressing the 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 british (laughs) and the fact that they were like well brexit is stupid isn't it and it almost felt like like they felt like it was a one-up on on england yeah i think i mean it's 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 certainly the case with the with with these podcasts as well in as much as we're not just commenting on irishness we're also commenting on englishness britishness call it what you will it's it's the it's the it's the um it, it it's the life within this country as experienced by people who's who, who either themselves or their forebears have come from somewhere else, um, yeah. Who are, for want of a better term, exiled from their from their home from their home country because they they they, they come across not so much out of choice but out of necessity. Um, yeah, but and, some kind of, some come out of choice, and I think mm-hmm. that that's that like the, the a lot of people had to leave. But many people chose to leave, do you know? So I think we have to, I don't know, recognise that as well. Like, I think Ireland has had a terrible time of it in a lot of ways, um, and I'm, I, don't, I wouldn't want to deny that. But 
it's not all been terrible all of the time. Um, oh no, I don't want to put that kind of. No, no, know. no. But I think the 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 sort of discourse around the Irish migrant is like a poor, starving nineteen eighties peasant, and actually the reality is, is particularly during the the year of the the Celtics hike, like the Irish are very well educated, very qualified economic migrants who weren't necessarily leaving because they had to. Um, and there's a lot of capital and a lot of power in, in the Irish diaspora. And I think that's something we should celebrate. One final question, which is, what does being a member of the diaspora mean to you? Oh, God. That's such a question. Um, I know, that's why I leave it to last. What does being a member of the Irish diaspora mean to me? Um, I think You say diaspora, I say diaspora. Diaspora, you say diaspora. Potato, I... I say potato. <laughs> I think for me, it's, it's, it's so much to do with family. Um, like my mum's got a really big family. Like my dad's family are great, but there's not many of them, do you know? And my mum's got this big far reaching family and it's, it's, it, it's that. And it's having those connections and the possibilities that lay within that. And in the sense that, there are people who who are related to me in some stretch of something who are all over the world doing weird and wonderful things and and that sort of gives you hope for for what you can do because you've got so many different experiences that people have had and they're not just like these distant people who don't exist they're people who have the same great grandparents as you and I think for me, that's knowing that and, and seeing, seeing the possibilities that life has. Like when, when I was growing up in Bedfordshire, like it wasn't uncommon for people's cousins to go to the same school as them and for their parents to have gone to that school as well. And I remember being like, what? Well, you go to the same school as your cousins. Do you mean your cousins don't live a long way away? Or like you don't have family in Chicago or like, and I, I'm always thankful for the breadth of experience that I have been able to see and observe and understand and the, 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 the lack of impossibilities that that has given me. And I think for me, that, that's, that's kind of what it means, I guess. <laughs> You've been listening to The Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora, we all come from somewhere else. With me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Neve Lear. The Plastic Pedestal was provided by Jess Moriarty. Music by Jack Devaney. Find out more about us and subscribe at www.plasticpodcasts.com or you can pay us a visit through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The Plastic Podcast has been sponsored using public funding by Arts Council England.